It's got to be fiction, but unfortunately, maybe it's true. But in those rooms, you have cameras in the strangest places. Well, what I'm saying with 100% certainty is that they were working to undermine the Magnitsky Act. You better be careful, or you'll be watching yourself on nightly television. Hello, and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man who knew Roy Moore was going to lose in Alabama and Ed Gillespie in Virginia. Donald Trump, he's always right. I'm Jacob Weisberg. You know, someday we may learn more about the propaganda circuit that connects Fox News to Donald Trump's White House. Ostensibly, Trump watches Fox, gets riled up, and tweets. Fox then sees the tweets and amps them up, creating a virtuous cycle of nonsense. I suspect, however, that Trump and his minions plant a lot of those seeds for Fox. Take the new meme that Robert Mueller's investigation of the Trump-Russia scandal is an attempt at a coup against the president. Jesse Waters, who's one of Fox's more vile personalities, and that's saying something, trotted out this new line over the weekend. He said that the Mueller investigation was weaponized to override the results of the election. Now, if that's true, we have a coup on our hands in America, he said. He then interviewed Kellyanne Conway, who was standing in front of the White House. The caption underneath her read, A coup in America? Question mark. The use of that term points to the Trump-Fox axis's bottomless willingness to undermine trust in American democracy for their own political purposes. It's reminiscent of Trump's claim before the election that it was going to be rigged and that, Roy Moore-like, he might not accept the results. That stance proved a little embarrassing when Trump won the election. As we know, President Trump has a strong tendency to project his own wrongdoing onto his opponents. When he calls someone a bigot or a liar or dangerous, well, you know who he's really talking about. When he charges that an election is rigged against him, that might just mean he was doing his own rigging. And when Trump's people cry, coup, it's time to wonder if they're getting ready to carry one out, perhaps by firing a special prosecutor who's getting too close to the truth. Today on the show, on a scale of 1 to 10, how economically destructive is the tax bill Republicans are set to pass this week? I'll be back to discuss it with the economist Jason Furman right after we do the tweets. Tax cuts will increase investments in the American economy, ending U.S. workers, leading to higher growth, higher wages, and more jobs. As a candidate, I promised we would pass a massive tax cut for the everyday working American families who are the backbone and the heartbeat of our country. Now we are just days away. Wonderful weekend at Camp David. A very special place. A lot of very important work done. Heading back to the White House now. Remember, Republicans are 5-0 and in congressional races this year. The media refuses to mention this. I said Gillespie and Moore would lose for very different reasons. And they did. 
I also predicted I would win. Republicans will do well in 2018, very well, at Fox and Friends. Ivanka Trump will be interviewed on Fox and Friends. I'm pleased to welcome Jason Furman. He's a professor of economic policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. And you might remember that he was chairman of Barack Obama's Council of Economic Advisors. Jason, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So the tax bill is probably going to pass this week. Certainly seems to be where everybody's betting. Where do you rate this among the big tax bills of the past in terms of how beneficial or harmful it is. I mean, do you think, I know you've been writing very critically about it, but in the scale of tax bill horrors, is this a 10 or is it more like, mm-hmm. a, like a three? I might pick the number seven. Um, <laughs> it is, first of all, size. Uh-huh. It's about 1% of GDP. The Bush tax cuts were about 2% of GDP. Reagan cut taxes, then raised taxes on net. That was 2% of GDP. So this is a little bit smaller in terms of a deficit increase than those. But we're at a time when our deficit and debt are higher than it was back then. And one thing that really bumps my number up is there's an utterly, you know, I would argue, superfluous elimination of the individual mandate. So it's not just a tax bill. It's a health bill. And that will cause a lot of additional uninsured higher premiums. Um, and I think in some respects, that's really quite bad and, and, and maybe difficult to change in the future. I mean, to talk about the deficit effect, one number I saw that really struck me was this tax bill gets us to a sort of permanent place where government federal expenditures are about 21% of GDP and revenues are about 17% of GDP. So if that's right, it's a 4% structural deficit. And the people passing this bill, the Republicans, are just sort of saying, that's fine. They don't mind that there is that big a gap stretching basically forever between what government spends and what government brings in. Yeah, and I think that's the most fundamentally important point of all of this. The reason we have the tax system isn't for fun and amusement. It's to raise the revenue we need to do the things that we've committed um, to do. If you look at the Bull-Simpson Fiscal Commission from a number of years ago, you know, lots of people in the business community, even lots of conservatives, said they supported that commission. That commission wanted revenue to be 21% of GDP, the number you just said for the underlying spending in the economy. This To get from this bill to Bowles-Simpson revenue levels, we would need about a $7 trillion tax increase over the next decade. So we're moving you know, very much in the wrong direction relative to what there was a, a reasonably broad consensus around doing. So this bill does various things. The, probably the headline is cutting the corporate rate from 35% to 21%. It actually cuts the top individual bracket from 396 where it's been for a while, to 37 It shrinks, does not quite eliminate deductions for state and local taxes. It shrinks the mortgage in- interest deduction a little bit. It increases the child care tax credit. Like a lot of tax bills, there's a lot of stuff in there. Is there an animating theory behind it? I mean, is there a Trumponomics that is says 
you know, if you do this, if basically you cut corporate taxes a lot, you will cause growth in such and such a way. I mean, what's the idea embedded in this tax bill? It's a few different things at once. Um, First and foremost, in terms of the dollars and the motivation, is cutting the corporate tax rate, as you said, from 35 to 21. That by itself costs about $1.5 trillion. So in a sense, everything else in the bill is just puts and takes relative to that um, one provision. The idea there is that the United States has gotten out of step with the rest of the world in terms of tax rates. I think there is some merit to wanting to lower tax rates but on corporations, but that isn't the same as cutting taxes for corporations. American corporations currently pay a relatively low effective rate and a high statutory rate, and you can bring those two together by um, closing loopholes, something this law does relatively um, little of. So that's animating principle number one. Animating principle number two is cutting taxes for high-income households. That's that top rate going from 39.6 to 37. That's a 20% reduction in the taxes on pass-through income, and it's really complicated to figure out what pass-through income is. Everyone's busily reading it. We're all going to be setting up our pass-through accounts because that's the new deduction. I mean, that's right, isn't it, right? I mean, they're creating an incentive to do this thing that doesn't spur any economic efficiency, but is just favored by the tax code. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, yeah, there'll there'll be a lot of people figuring out how to restructure themselves as pass-throughs, even as C-corporations, because a pass-through gets you 20% Um, off your taxes, C-Corp gets you all the way down to a 20% tax rate, which is even better. And so people, businesses are going to be trying to figure out how to change themselves into one or the other so they qualify. And that's, that's one of the problems with this bill is it's supposed to simplify taxes and it adds lots of new complexity. And complexity isn't just, you know, a problem in and of itself. It isn't just unfair because some people get something other people don't. It's also inefficient because the whole point of the tax code is to be as neutral as possible so that when you're making choices, you make it for a business reason, not just for a tax minimization reason. And this will lead to a lot more behavior that's about tax minimization rather than you know, maximizing you know, total social, social welfare. So it's not tax reform. It's not tax simplification. It's certainly not a middle-class tax cut, which is how they're billing it. It's a tremendous missell. There's a lot of bad policy in there. But it's just kind of Washington at work, right? I mean, it's a lot of special interests that got in there in a kind of smash-and-grab opportunity and put in some new preferences for itself. But overall, is there any reason to think this is going to have a meaningful effect on the economy one way or the other? Sure. And by the way, having this conversation, I think I want to raise my seven. I might have been being too polite and overly calm. <laughs> Good. I was um, hoping before. I'd get you worked up. Uh, I was being overly calm before. Um, yeah. And, and by the way, there's... there's um, what are you at now? You're the, about seven and a half? Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm going up. Um, and, and by the way, there's not just these special breaks, um, which, which we've been talking about a little bit, but there's also a certain amount of retribution in there. The cutting the state and local deduction really looks like it's motivated as attacking blue states. There is a tax on the endowments of the largest universities, that looks not like it was motivated by any policy rationale, but they just don't like um, the largest They're coming after you at Harvard. Uh, they're coming after, uh, you know, so I have, I have some self-interest here. I um, want to defend my, but but again, there's no, no one's ever been able to explain 
why they're doing that um, endowment. I mean, tax. this is amazing. I've I don't know that I've ever seen a bill that was so explicitly political in the sense of rewarding the people who vote for us, punishing the people who didn't. There's a thing in there I was just reading. Uh, that takes away a tax break for bicycle commuters. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, that was that, that is one of four individual tax breaks that this bill eliminates. There's only four. One of them is for bicycle commuters so, um, that are eliminated entirely. So tax bicycles, you, you know, tax Harvard and the, and Ivy League universities, tax California, New York, and New Jersey. I mean, is that it, it's right. not just a coincidence, right. right? I mean, they're punishing the people who voted for the Democrats. Right. And that's one difference from the 2001 tax cut. The 2001 tax cut that President Bush did, which I was not a fan of, that was a huge tax cut for high income, but it didn't have all this crazy special interest stuff. You got the tax cut in a pretty straightforward way. Your rate went down or your estate tax exemption um, went up. Here, it's a lot of little stuff buried in it that are rewards for some groups and a lot of little stuff buried in it that's punishment and retribution um, for other groups. And, and so it's, it, it's, it's much more – this looks a lot swampier than just the Bush tax cut, which is actually – you know, again, I don't like it very much, but it's relatively simple. It just changed some basic parameters in the tax code. And given the way it was put together in a terrible rush at the, in the dark of night with stuff being scribbled in the margin, I assume we're going to be finding Easter eggs buried in it for, for months to come. Yeah, no, there's a group of um, great tax lawyers at a, a number of different professors, and they've already come up with just quite a long list of um, things. And, and, and I worry that the cost estimates we're seeing for the bill are done by the best in the business, the best professionals. I'm always happy to abide by their numbers. If I had to bet, I would bet it ends up costing more rather than costing less because we talk about dynamic scoring for economic growth. You sort of need dynamic scoring for like accountants too because they're just going to be putting a lot of effort into finding out a lot of loopholes you can drive through this that no one, you know, estimated the cost of um, in advance. So um, dynamic scoring for the lay people or people who only listen to the show to hear about the Trump-Russia scandal <laughs> is the idea that, that a tax cut generates so much revenue that it will pay fully or partially for itself, right? And, and Steve Mnuchin and the official treasury analysis and some conservative economists are, are supporting this idea that this is so pro-growth that it'll cost a lot less than the neutral estimate. First of all, um, I support dynamic scoring. I think it is proper to look at legislation, understand the impact it'll have on its economy, and see if there's any feedback to that that partly makes up for it. Here, the dynamic scoring was done by the most expert body that does this. It's called the Joint Committee on Taxation. They're like the CBO for taxes, Uh nonpartisan group. And they did find that it would generate a little bit of growth, about one-tenth of a percent a year over the next decade. So growth is one-tenth of a percent higher per year, and that compounds over 10 years. It adds a little bit less than a percent. A little less than a percentage point to what growth would be otherwise. Right. Um, So that's what they said. I think that's reasonable. There's been other estimates that are a little bit lower than that, a few that have been higher than that. Um, I think that's a reasonable one. They also said that they didn't analyze after 10 years, but that as the deficits mounted, that cost would just grow over time. And so after 20 or 30 years, we could end up with a smaller economy and a worse economy as a result of this. So, um, But they said even with that growth, that wouldn't come close to paying for the tax cuts. In fact, 
Even conservative advocacy groups have not said that the growth would come close to paying for the tax cuts. The American Enterprise Institute, which is a conservative think tank in Washington, had a very similar growth number. They said one-half of one-tenth of one percent, maybe as much as one-tenth of one percent on the growth rate. So I think economists, you know, you'll occasionally see ones raise their hand and enter the public fray with an op-ed or something. Um, But the vast bulk of them from left to right think the growth effects are very small in the short run, could be negative over a couple decades, and all agree that the tax bill would not come close to paying for itself. You and Larry Summers, your former colleague from from the Obama administration and and the uh, Clinton administration, have gone after, in particular, a group of conservative economists, uh, including, I think, Nobel Prize winner Robert Barrow, who've been claiming a much higher growth from this tax cut. What's what do they claim, and what's the disagreement about? Um, you, by the way, may be predicting the future for Robert Barrow, um, but it, he hasn't won the Nobel Prize at least yet. Oh, sorry. Okay, uh, but. Uh, uh, And he's not going to win it with this analysis. (laughs) Uh, I I think Robert Barrett's done fantastic work. He was my first macro uh, teacher in graduate school, but I I wouldn't give him a Nobel Prize for the letter he wrote on this tax cut. And it really actually illustrates something. You have economists who, when they write stuff for journals, are really careful, check everything. And then um, a group of economists sent a letter to Secretary Mnuchin at a really critical time in this tax bill And it was just riddled with errors. It miscited sources. It multiplied numbers wrong. It was, I think, a little bit misleading in that it would give you a growth number but not tell you it might take you 30, 40, 50 years to get to that. So it's actually much smaller than you thought it was. And Larry Summers and I went and wrote a response to it. They responded back to us, and I admitted part of what we had charged, backtracked on some of their key numbers, and I think didn't answer the rest of what we said. But I think it's a little bit sad when you look at the public debate and there's not the same you know, accountability for accuracy that you would have you know, if you were in a, in a seminar and in an academic debate. Well, and this idea of academic neutrality, which in, in, econ- in economics has been a pretty strong tradition. I mean, obviously, uh, economics can be politicized, but in a- analyzing numbers, you do have this tradition of these these strong neutral bodies who who do the math and try to agree on assumptions. And this was kind of disconcerting because it seemed a little bit like Kevin Hassett and these other guys here were going after were kind of the Fox News of economics. They were going to give you the answer they wanted and, and find some numbers to throw at you to support it. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's been, you know, when you have the Treasury Secretary who's out there saying this is going to raise a trillion dollars, He now says it's raising taxes on high-income households, which is just a a ludicrous, preposterous um, claim. And then you have a set of people that want to write things that don't contradict that. So maybe they support it or maybe they phrase it a little bit differently. It sounds like it supports him while skirting at the edge of of something else. And and I found it um, pretty disturbing seeing people engage in the debate in that way. On the other hand, if you look at not the few economists that sort of raise their hand and throw themselves into the fray, but there's something called the Booth Survey, and that surveys the top active researchers in the field. It's balanced between Republicans and Democrats, and there they surveyed, I think it was 32 economists, all of whom said it wouldn't pay for itself. Um, I think one of whom, or yeah, only one of whom said it would make a big difference for economic growth. Um, you look at the chief economists of the Wall Street investment firms, They've been pretty much uniform in saying this would make very little difference for growth over the next decade. So I think 
economists, actually 95% of them do agree. It's just there's a small group that's out there being really activist, um, and I, I think in a pretty misleading way. Steve Mnuchin didn't have a lot of credibility in the economics world before this, but it's got to be shredded now. I mean, he has been misdescribing this bill in a way that, well, you know, there's no particular value to using the term lie promiscuously, but he's been intentionally distorting facts about what the bill is and what it does. Yeah. Oh, no. To say, you know, President Trump is much closer to the mark when he says this is a huge tax cut than Secretary Mnuchin is when he says this is going to raise taxes on the rich and bring in an extra trillion dollars of revenue. So, yeah, I would go with President Trump on the at least the direction this would have on revenue. Lastly, I want to ask you, Jason, about the individual mandate and the effects on the Affordable Care Act. You know, last time they came after the Affordable Care Act directly and and nearly repealed it or undermined it, there was a huge hue and cry, and I think that was part of what prevented it from happening. This has slipped into a tax bill. It's not a comprehensive repeal by any means of the ACA, but it does go after this key mechanism of an individual requirement to obtain health insurance. Is Does that, over time, undermine the ACA and destroy it in the same way that repeal would have? Or is it something that is just kind of not helpful and bad, but not not absolutely central to it? I think it's pretty bad. I don't think it's the very end of the Affordable Care Act. Um, the Affordable Care Act was built on a trinity. One was you had a responsibility to get health insurance. Two was you couldn't discriminate against people and tell them they couldn't get health insurance. And three, you'd give subsidies to make sure that people could afford it. And those three economically fit together. This takes away one of those three. CBO estimated 13 million more uninsured and premiums in the individual market going up 10%. There have been some other analyses that put the number of uninsured at about half of that, and I'd actually probably bet on the lower number rather than the higher. But you know, having millions of people go uninsured and driving up premiums is, um, you know, I, I think just well, you've got a terrible you- economic policy. Would I take the Affordable Care Act with this amendment over what we had in 2008? Absolutely, it's a much better world today than what we had in 2008. It's a decent amount worse world, you know, with this change relative to what we had, uh, you know, immediately before it. But to use your metaphor, you've just sawed one of the legs off the tripod. Tripod yeah. needs three legs to stand. I mean, is it, so why is that? Why does, why does that not undermine it completely? Well, the reason it doesn't undermine it completely is that about 85% of the people in the individual market are getting subsidies from the government to pay for their health insurance. So for them, when premiums go up, it's not going to reduce their ability to buy insurance. So it prices out some of the ones who have incomes more in the sixty to 100000 range that are in the Affordable Care Act, which I think is a problem. I'm not trying to minimize that. But I don't think this could send the ACA into a death spiral because it was designed in a way to basically be impervious to that because of the role that government subsidies play in, in cutting that off. The uh, stock market sure seems to like this tax cut, which is one of President Trump's main talking points in favor of it. What does that actually tell us? I mean, just that that it's good for corporations that are publicly traded. Yeah, absolutely. The stock market gives you the present discounted value of corporate earnings. And corporate earnings are going to be higher because they're going to be paying less in taxes. So even if this does nothing at all for GDP, the stock market um, rationally should be higher. 
Um, that's obviously not a good test for economic policy. We try to look at GDP or wages or jobs or other measures like that. But yeah, no, this is is designed to to turbocharge your market. That being said, you know the U.S. market isn't up that much more than any other global market, and it's not at and at any faster pace than in a typical year under President Obama. But you know, part of what's helping us right now um, probably is this is this cut. The tax cut is really unpopular, like two to one or, or more unfavorable now. But do you think this is really going to make a difference when it comes to the midterms or even the next, next presidential election? I mean, people can respond to what they understand the drift of it, that it's uh, that it's another sop to the rich. But is there anything in it that's like a voting issue that's going to hit people where they live, that's going to make them turn out if they wouldn't turn out or switch parties in a midterm? Right. I, you're asking someone who's really not expert in that question at all, so I'll just take I a, remember I'll the old take... days, Jason, before you were uh, an academic <laughs> uh, economist uh, when you did a little politics on the side. Um, well, I'll just take a wild guess here. <laughs> I think you know, I think people are really bad at assessing how policies affect them directly. You know, people will get Medicare and not realize it's a government program or the Affordable Care Act. A lot of people thought that George W. Bush raised their taxes, even though he didn't raise anyone's taxes. So I think people will process this less through what they're paying on their tax forms and the rational way it affects them um, and more through the political filter and the way they learn about it and hear about it. And, you know, for Democrats and a lot of independents, this is confirmed – the worst impression they had that somebody was elected on basically false pretenses, pretending to be a populist, but really trying to govern on behalf of his own um, his own self-interest. And I think for a number of Republicans, that'll be too. So I think this will certainly, you know, for somebody who didn't do a lot of the populist things on the economy that he said he was going to do, and then came along, and this is one of the only things he did on the economy, I think um, really will undermine some of the narrative that President Trump used to get here in the first place. I've been speaking to the economist Jason Furman. Jason, thanks for joining me on the show. Thanks for having me. That's it for today's show. Trumpcast was produced by Vera Lynn Williams. Jason DeLeon is on vacation. We had help today from Evan Viola. John D. Domenico is our voice of Donald Trump. And I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.